0: All right, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 18, and we'll be reading the entire uh, chapter. And just to set the passage in a little context, I'll work through some of this a little later, but God's people have been delivered out of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh, out of slavery, and they are on their way uh, to the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. And we are about, uh, I guess, four chapters after the... Parting of the Red Sea and two chapters before the giving of the Ten Commandments. And so this is a really pivotal point, I think, in the history of Israel. So this is the word of the Lord. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons, the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, the God of my house was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, and coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and he bowed down and he kissed him and they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them and the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And the next day Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute. They come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people will, with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you and you are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice and I will give you advice and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people, the chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter you shall, they shall decide for themselves. So it will, be, it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all the people also will go in their place in peace. And so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law, and he did all that he had said. And so Moses chose able men out of all of Israel, and he made them heads over peoples, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves, Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come now asking for your blessing upon The reading and hearing and preaching and doing of your word. Blessed is a man who not only hears. Blessed is a man or woman or child who hears and does. May we be doers of your word. And may we do this out of a place of love and adoration and gratitude for what you have done for us in Christ. And so be with your servant now as we proclaim your word. Would you be honored and glorified in Christ's name? Amen. All right. So uh, if you're here today and you're not a member of Redeemer, then you are you've kind of come in. Where we're we're sort of doing a family meeting. And I don't know if you have family meetings growing up, but maybe something happened in the family or the home. And at that point, whatever was happening, you would politely ask people to leave. And at that moment, the family could get down to family business. Um, that's kind of where we are in our church. We want you to be here. I'm glad you're here. I'm not asking you to leave right now. Uh, But this passage is uniquely about something that we're doing in our church to better care for our own members. And it's coming on the heels of last week's sermon where we read Revelation chapter one and chapter two. And I want to just do a brief overview, not go and preach the whole sermon over. But in Revelation chapter one, you will remember the image of Jesus that John received and it was Jesus Christ. And of all the images that John could have gotten of the resurrected Jesus, the first image, the very first image that he received was Jesus standing next to seven lampstands. And John says, it's not rocket science. The lampstands are the church. It is the church. And so he, he himself decodes the lampstands. And the case that I made to you last week is that the local church is the most important institution on the face of the planet. It is the first image that Jesus gives to John to show John where you can find me. You can find me, says Jesus, next to and near to my local churches that proclaim the gospel and, and rest in me. That is Jesus's priority. It's the local church. So I made the case to you that Being a part of a Bible believing church, wherever you are, if it's Redeemer or another church, it is integral to your life and your faith. It is that important to Jesus. But if you have a person like Jesus who has these piercing eyes and who has this white hair that John says he's the ancient of days and he can see through everything, then you also know that that's a scary thought, because if that means that Jesus is next to the local church and the local church is important, then that also means that every local church is if we're really honest in being the church, then we are submitting ourselves to him. And so Jesus, with his piercing eyes, he comes next to churches and he evaluates them. And the case that I made to you last night, there's a theme in Revelation 2 and 3 where the way that Jesus evaluated the church was first and foremost by looking for what's good. That's in almost every of the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3. Only one of them gets no commendation from Jesus, and that's Laodicea. All the other six churches, Jesus proclaims, I see this good thing that you're doing. And the case that I made to you is that if you're a healthy church, Then we need to celebrate what the spirit is doing in our midst. That's a part of being the church is celebrating and recognizing those things that are good and praiseworthy. Not that we might be boastful, not that we can be boastful in what we've done, but we're boasting in what Christ has done through us. But Jesus does not just see the good of a church. He sees the bad of a church. He sees what's not right in a church. And of the seven letters, five of them all highlight something wrong. In Ephesus, he says, you've done these things, you've done these things, you've done these things, but I have this against you. You have lost your first love. And so I made the case to you that we can't have it both ways. We can't celebrate what's right without also owning what's not. And when I became your pastor, I interviewed about 110 of you and I listened for three months. I just listened. And a lot of our weaknesses were uncovered. I didn't feel like the timing was right to jump in right then. I felt like, hey, we're going to be the church and work through the word. And God is long-suffering and patient and kind. And I wanted to work with our elders through some of this. But two things surfaced. One, that we want to be more diverse. We want to have our church better reflect the demographics of our city and our community. And I talked about some ways that I think we can do a better job at that while also Thankful for what God has done down those things that are really good here. But the other thing that came up was our need to care for you better. That one of the complaints or one of the levels, the the, points of opportunities in those interviews, it was pastoral care. That as Redeemer has grown, it's been easier to fall through the cracks. That as we as we've gotten bigger, it's been easier to lose sight of individual members. And you know what Jesus says? He says, I'm the good shepherd. I will not lose one of my sheep. He says, I will leave the 99 and I will go find the one and I will bind him or her up and I will bring them back. I will restore them. And so that, that's the that, that's the bar, right? The bar for this is, is is the good shepherding of Christ who in a crowd of a thousand. He says, no, I don't just see the crowd. I see every one of you individually. And it's harder for us as you grow to to do that. And so I picked this passage because I think it points to something that I think is really helpful and practical. And so I hope by the end you'll be on the same page with me. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is that the delivered are still in danger. Now, when I say that, I mean what I have in the back of my mind is Exodus 14. That God's people have been delivered, right? They've been delivered out of bondage. They've been delivered out of Egypt. They've been delivered out of slavery. And the temptation is to think that, wait a minute, they've been delivered. They're scot-free, right? But here's the thing. Not one person from that generation made it into the promised land. <laughs> think about that. Think about that. Not even Moses. Moses. That tells me that the the exit door from Egypt and that first step into the promised land, it's dangerous. Now, that does not mean that Moses was not saved. It does not mean that the people of Egypt who were in that generation were not saved. It just meant that you ever had those long, 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 long days, right? Where it's just hard and tiring and you get to kind of when you come home and you walk in your door and you sit down and kick your feet up. And it's just that. Ah. Right. You you felt that. Here's the thing. I don't think they got to feel that they toiled and toiled and toiled for 40 years. Doesn't mean that they weren't saved. They just did not get to taste the eternal rest. Now, why were they in danger? A, A few things. You see it in Exodus 15, that that, that right after they come through the Red Sea in Exodus 14, Moses sings that song, which Bentley read parts of it for a call to worship. And look at what happens right after that, right after the song. Look at Exodus 15, verse 22. And then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and they found no water. Right there, after Moses sings the praises of God's deliverance, they go right in the wilderness and there is no water. So there's a scarcity of resources in the wilderness. It doesn't just happen here. They don't have water here. He makes it sweet. Then they need to get manna and then there's water from a rock. That what you'll see in the wilderness journeys is it's dangerous living out here, right? That's not it. It's not just the lack of of resources. There's also the lack of security. And you see that in Exodus seventeen, the passage right before our passage. Look at what it says in Exodus seventeen, eight. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel. At and so Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men who will go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so the image there is, isn't just that there was a scarcity of food, of bread, of water, of manna, of quail. There's also the lack of security. They're walking through the wilderness and the nations around them, they want to kill them. And then you get to Artex. When Jethro, who's a Midianite priest, who comes to meet Moses, is Moses' father-in-law, and he emphasizes that over and over again, he comes to Moses and he meets Moses, and he sits down with Moses in a tent. And we believe that Jethro is converted. Like, after Moses is telling him about God's faithfulness, that Jethro is converted, says, Now I know that your God is the God of gods, and he offers a sacrifice. So something beautiful happens. But here's the thing, Jethro doesn't go home. He he says that he's confronted. He he meets Moses, but then he stays and he stays and he watches Moses. And here is the thing that you see happening in the context of this passage. Notice what Moses was doing when Jethro saw him. Look at verse 16. Look at 15 and 16. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them to know the statutes of God and his laws. In other words, the danger isn't just scarcity. The danger isn't just security. The danger in the camp is their own sin. That right now what's happening within Israel is they're fighting against each other. It's the same thing that Paul wrote in Galatians 5. He says, if you keep on, what does he say in Galatians chapter 5? If you keep biting and devouring one another, be careful lest you are destroyed by one another. It's the same thing he writes in first Corinthians where he says, are you taking each other to court? You're destroying one another. In other words, Christians, this is what I want you to hear. That just because we've been delivered from our sins, from the penalty thereof, and just because we are righteous. And that is a beautiful and glorious thing that I am loved and known and counted righteous in the sight of God that I am not home yet. And I might not be worried about water from a rock, and I might not be worried about manna from heaven, but I worry if I lose my job, how can I pay my next bill? I might not be battling the uh, the Midianites or the Amalekites coming to, to do war against me. But we do know that we fight against not flesh and blood, but evil and darkness and principalities and rulers in high places. We aren't home yet. And because we're not home yet, this life is dangerous, even as a believer. When I was in third grade, one of my favorite teachers was a lady by the name of Miss Coleman, and she used to always read Robert Frost to us, and I did not know who he was, right? She would just read Robert Frost, and I I thought about this passage, and I thought about his poem, and it, it goes like this, that when, whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here, to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near. Between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. You hear the image there? It's so tempting to stop like right here and to camp out in this other man's woods. And Robert Frost is saying, no, I got miles to go before I sleep, miles to go before I sleep. I wonder, do we think about this world and this life on this side of eternity in that way? This is not home. We have miles to go, miles to go before I sleep. And therefore, life on this side of eternity is dangerous. It's dangerous, right? You can't tell me that, that you don't lose hope and, and life isn't hard when you see men in masks and carrying tiki torches and running a car over, right? You can't tell me that this doesn't shake you up when you watch what's happening in Barcelona and this man takes a, a van and just rides it down the busiest street there. You can't tell me it doesn't shake you up when you drive right down Northside Drive and cross over Watkins Drive at the Blue House on the corner of Lambton and Northside Drive and Jackson's 36th murder happened right there, right there. You can't tell me it's not hard when you drive two blocks down from First Pres right across the street from the Baptist Hospital. And in the middle of a night, a man just walks up to a car and dumps a gun and just starts unloading on somebody. You look at the news right now, four cops killed or two killed and two injured in Florida, that you cannot tell me that this does not shake you. It shakes me. It shakes me. It hurts me. It angers me. And it will upset my faith if I'm not careful. That that's welcome to life on this side of eternity. It's dangerous. The second thing we see is that in those moments in Israel, they were, it, was just, it wasn't just the, the scarcity. It wasn't just the security. It, wasn't, it, it was also their own sin that those three things made life in the wilderness dangerous. And here's what you see over and over again, that whenever they're in danger, whether it's being attacked or whenever they don't have food or when they're sinning in the camp, you know what they always do? They always turn to their leader. When they don't have food, Moses, what you going to do? When they're about to get beat down, Moses, what we going to do? When they got disputes and fighting inside, Moses, what we going to do? That's the posture that you see. That's the thing that you see whenever they're in danger. The people come to another who is supposed to be there for and to impart wisdom and to listen and to care. And Moses does it every single time. And so the second case that I want to make to you is in those moments of danger, that we all need little deliverers. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about deliver with a capital D. There's only one person who can deliver you and watch your soul, and that is Jesus. There's only one person who can bear the load of your sin and everything, and that's Jesus. But I'm also, I want to push against that and say, wait a minute, we need little deliverers. Little people like this that we can, can go to and can listen and cry with and grieve with. And that's exactly what you see in our text is they're all going to Moses. Now, look at, look at verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. Look at verse 14. When Moses, his father-in-law, saw all that he was doing for the people he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Now, the emphasis is not on the fact that they're going to Moses. The emphasis is on the fact that he's the one doing it alone all day long for all the people. And Moses responds, I do this because they come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God. Again, the emphasis is on one man doing it all. And notice what Jethro says in verse 17. He says, what you are doing is not good. Like, whoa, we've seen that phrase before, right? When Adam and Eve were created, before Eve was created, Adam was alone. What did the Lord say? It is not good for man to be alone. And so when you see this not good phrase, It's as if Jethro is calling out sin in the camp. Now, why isn't it not, why is it this not a good thing? Look at verse 18. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for this thing is too heavy for you and you are not able to do it alone. That phrase right there, wear yourself out, it, it means to wither or to dry. And here is what Jethro was saying. You doing this alone, it's not good for you. And it's not good for the people. You will wear each other out. Now think about this math here for a minute. How many people, how big was Israel at this point? If you turn back to Exodus chapter 12, you, I, I, I love how the Bible kind of connects these things. But if you turn to Exodus chapter 12, look at verse 37. I love the sound of Bibles turning, by the way. That's a good sound. Look at verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, not counting the women and the children. Think about the image. Think about the, I mean, 600,000. If you, if every man had a wife, you're at 1.2 million. And if every couple had a kid, I mean, you're just like, you're you're well over 1.5 million. Now, here's the thing. If Moses sat around, like the scriptures are saying, all the people came to him and he sat there from morning until evening. Do you know how long it takes for him to care for the flock? That if Moses, let's just assume he can sleep for eight hours and let's assume he spends 16 hours a day, no work break, no lunch break, no working out, no reading the newspaper. Let's just assume that he's going in 18 hours a day and let's assume every family unit gets 30 minutes of his time, right? You want to know how long it takes him to work through the flock? 45 years. Forty five years. And so when Jethro sees this and he sees the line and he sees the frustration, he says, this isn't good. This is not good. Now, why can't he do it alone? He's not Jesus. Secondly, I think we all have limits, right? Time. Other things that we're engaged in. Emotional capacity to just listen and listen To try to get in and hear and to listen well and to help and serve. That that, that we run into all types of limits. And here's the thing. Two things puzzle me. The first thing that puzzles me is no one seems to notice that this isn't working. (laughs) The people are good to stand in line. And Moses is good to just sit there. It takes an outsider, right? Jethro comes in and he's like, whoa, this is not working right. Here's the other thing that, that puzzles me. Did you catch where Moses' family had been in all of this? Did you catch that? Look at chapter 2, I mean, verse 2 of of verse 18. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah. Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with their two sons, and the name was one was Gershom, the name of the other was Eleazar. Look at verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. So think about the image, right? Jethro shows up with Moses' wife and kids. Moses apparently sent them away. He sent his family away to, to his father-in-law and, and Jethro comes back. And the first thing he sees is what? I see all these people lined up talking to you and I got your wife and your kids in my camp. You're famous right here caring for other people. And you know what you're not famous right here. That's why he it says it's not good. I can't help but think that when Paul writes so much of what he writes about elders and pastors, that it's a reason it comes up over and over again. Let a man pastor his own home well. And then the house of God. Right. That I I think I can't help but think that, man, Paul is probably borrowing some of this from this passage. Now, here's the thing. We learn in this text that it's not a matter of if, but when those moments will come in all of our lives. where we need the wisdom of another. We need the ear of another. We need the prayers of another that that there are moments in our lives where. We, we, we need a smaller deliverer, uh, someone who is not Jesus, but someone given the, the spirit of Jesus, someone who will listen and love and serve and sometimes rebuke and correct, but who will definitely press into what's going on in our hearts and lives. Have you ever been in situations that are too complex for you to get out of because you are so close and near to it? Have you ever been stumped with decisions where you can't do it alone? Have you ever ran out of wisdom, ran out of money, ran out of time, ran out of reason? To outreason yourself out of things, if we are really, really honest and humble, we all get in those, those bonds where we need the help of another. And it looks like, it literally looks like when your husband's had a heart attack and we don't know if he's going to make it, and you have people who show up and lay hands on him and read scripture. That it matters when you're struggling addiction and you're in a crack house or you're in a bar. And you're scared and you're ashamed to reach out. But there is somebody there is somebody who will come and who will rescue you and who will help you. Right. It is something when you've lost your job and, and you said it two and three times and, and it appears to fall on deaf ears and you know that people know people and our social networks and all you want is just listen to me, dog. Just listen to me. Help me out, right? You know what it feels like to be in those moments when connections are made. It is a blessing and it is a balm for your souls. And you also know when you're in those moments and no one visits. And no one shows up and no one calls and no one listens. And it feels as if no one cares. See, I think that's at the root of a lot of church hurt. We send two different messages. We send we're brothers and sisters. You're welcome. We send I love you in Jesus. And then we walk out and we go on with our lives, not entering into the pain and affliction of others. And that's why people are saying, wait a minute. If you're the church, just be the church. But that's where the hurt starts to come in when you, you, you put this out there and, and no one hears and no one listens and they just go on with their merry little way. That is not the church. That is a social gathering. And so the question that we have to wrestle through is how in the world do you care for this many people and at the same time keep your sanity? Like, how do you do this? How do you do this? How do you care for every single person that we not lose one? And how do we stay sane in doing it? Jethro gives Moses a new directive from God. Look at verses 19 through 27. Jethro says, now obey my voice and I will give you advice and God be with you. Now you have Jethro taking the posture of the teacher. And he tells Moses, you sit down and you listen to me. Look at what he says in verse 19 through 20. You shall still represent the people before God and you shall bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moses is to remain a mediator. He's to remain a shepherd. But he's also going to be a prophet. You're not just going to be reacting when there are problems. You're going to be proactive and teach and lead the flock. That is the way that we're going to do this, says Jethro. Well, who will care for the people? Look at what he says in verse 21. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over people as chiefs of thousands and of hundreds and of fifties and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall decide for themselves. Notice what he says it will be lighter for you, it will be easier for you. The heaviness of pastoring. 1.5 1.5 or 1 million people, wherever you think that number is in the sex, the way that that has to be done is by Moses getting help. For men, not just any men, but able men. Not just able men, but men who fear the Lord, not just men who fear the Lord, but men who are trustworthy, and who can't be bought with money or who are preoccupied with profiting off of the church. Place them over thousands, over hundreds and the fifties. And this isn't the first time we've seen something like this. If you go back, go back one verse in chapter 17, go back to that section right before chapter 18. Notice what happens in that battle with Amalek. So look at verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went at the top of the hill. Look at verse 11 of chapter 17. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever Moses lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Look at verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and they put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur, they held up his hands one on one side and one on the other. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. You see the image. This isn't the first time God has to tell Moses, buddy, you need some help. And so in the battle, he's holding his hands up. And as long as he can hold them up, they're winning. But he's one man. He can't hold his hands up all day. And so they droop. And so what do they do? They bring him a stone, sit on the stone. Let me get to your right and to your left. And we're going to hold your hands up with you. That is how they conquered the people. It is through Moses getting help. It is through Moses dividing the people up. Now, the question is, would Moses continue living in this way or would he do something new? Look at the end of verse 24. It says that Moses listened to the voice of his father in law and he did all that he had said. And so Moses chose men out of all of Israel and he made them heads. And Moses' father in law left and Moses' children, they stayed. You see the good news in this passage? And here's the good news. The good news isn't that God told Moses to go and create these men. God told Moses, to go and find them. And you know what that means? That means that the men were already there. That means that the same spirit that had been at work in Moses was already at work in the hearts of the entire congregation. That Moses is never called To do what God does not empower and enable. And that's the beautiful thing about the passage that God cares deeply and beautifully about every single one of his people. And God himself sort of puts Moses out there to feel that you can't do this alone. And once he feels this and sees this, God says, don't you know, I already have people waiting on you. I already got men out here where my spirit has been working in their midst. And all I need you to do is to stop being at the center of it and to go out there and to find where the spirit is already at work. Isn't that great news? Doesn't it sound a lot like Ephesians when we think about that passage in Ephesians chapter 4 where it says Christ descended into the earth and he was raised. And as he was ascending into heaven, he gave gifts to the church. He gave the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To, knowledge of the Son of God mature manhood that we may no longer be tossed to and fro. Here's the image of the same Jesus who saved you by going into the grave. As he was ascending, he gave gifts to the church. He gave gifts to the church that he himself through the church and through what he gives might make sure that his people persevere until the end. It is not me or Moses or anybody creating this. It's the beautiful truth that God loves the church way more than I do. And God himself will give to the church exactly what the church needs. Now, why is all of this important? Because we talked about the weakness of the church. and That's caring for you. And Jesus calls us to name it and to repent and to turn. And I think what you see happening in this passage is that they are dividing the flock of Israel into manageable portions. Where men will have oversight for family units. The family units will have access to men in leadership who care and love you, who won't take a bribe, who you have nominated to be your own elders. That what we're going to do, what we have been working on for five months is this. Getting our data right. We know right now there's 1,016 members in this church. We also know that there are 476 households in this church and we've taken that 476 and we've divided them by 17, 14 elders and three men on staff. And now we have roughly 28 family units for every elder or staff person. And you know what this means? It means that if you're in a moment in life and life is hard, phone call away. It means that every morning when we get up, that we're looking at our shepherding group and we're praying for you name by name, person by person, family unit by family unit. It means that we, we don't want to lose you. We don't want to drop the ball. We don't want you to be in the wilderness alone and to hit those points in life where you need a person. You have a person. We've given you a person. And in the coming weeks and coming months, you're going to hear more about how we are going to put boots to the ground and actually do a better job at loving you. Bentley's worked tirelessly to overhaul our church management software. He's been putting in a lot of time to get this right, and I'm thankful. But I want you to know that we want to do a better job at caring for and knowing you. I'm going to close with this image. Some of you may know who that is. It's a guy by the name of Derek Redman. He was a former 400-meter British world record holder. And in 1992, as he was starting the race, the 400-meter race, um, he felt what he thought was a gunshot on the back of his leg. And uh, it wasn't a gunshot, he had torn his hamstring, and he could not finish the race. And I want you to listen to what he says. He says, when I took my place on the starting blocks, I felt good. I'd won the first two rounds without breaking a sweat, including posting the fastest time in the first round. In the first round, I was confident, and when the gun went off, I got off to a good start. Now, notice what he's—he's he, he's running a race. He's trained for this for years. How hard can this be? Nobody's coming to tackle you, right? That he thinks he's out there in the clear, about to go, and all of a sudden, a hamstring ruptures, and then I heard a popping sound and I thought I had been shot in the back of my leg. I could not believe this was happening after all the training I put in. I looked around to see where the rest of the field were and they were gone. And the pain was intense. I hobbled until about 50 meters until I was at the 200 meter mark and then I realized it was all over. I looked around and everyone had crossed the finishing line. I tried to keep going, but I couldn't. And then with about 100 meters to go, I became aware of someone else on the track. I didn't realize it, but it was my dad. He said, Derek, it's me. You don't need to do this alone. I just said, Dad, I want to finish. He said, okay, we started this thing together and now we'll finish it together. He managed to get me to stop trying to run and just walk and he kept repeating, you're a champ, you've got nothing to prove and we've hobbled over the finish line with our arms around each other. I wanna tell you that there are coming moments when you will fall and things will be hard. And while the world races past you, you need someone who can say, I see her, I see him. And I'll stop and I'll go back and we'll limp across the finish line together We'll limp across the finish line together. That's my prayer. Is that if you are part of this church and you fall. That you're seen and you're known and you're pursued. And we limp across the finish line together. Let's pray. we love you and we love your word and we love the wisdom that comes from it I love to see the way that you move before we do I love the way to see your heart you cared about every single person in Israel you desired that they be known and loved and cared for and provided for Lord that has not changed if anything it's intensified That Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, my sheep know me, and I will lose not one of them. I will leave the 99 and I will go to the one and I will find him and bring him or her back. Thank you for using means such as the preach word and your spirit and also other people and your reclaiming of your sheep. I do pray that you would give us grace upon grace to do what we have set out to do that we might all finish the race before us. For Christ's sake, amen.